welcome to Talking Beats with Daniel Lalchuk. That's me, and I'm so glad you're here. If you like what we do, I'd love it if you gave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And if you're so compelled, write a review. That really helps, and maybe tell a friend or family member. They might like the show as much as you do. If you want to get involved in the program, visit our website, talkingbeats.com, and click Support the Show, where you can make either a one-time or a recurring donation. As we look to continue having cliche-free conversations of real substance with a diverse range of the world's most compelling people, your support is so appreciated, especially as we look to expand and increase our offerings. If you have a question, comment, or thought, find us on social media, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or if you wish to reach out directly, email me at daniel at talkingbeats.com. I'm so glad you're here. Let's get on with today's conversation. On today's program, writer Ananda Lima. She's out with a new poetry compilation called Motherland, which explores linguistic and cultural relations between her home country, Brazil, and her adopted country, America. What has this nation given her that Brazil couldn't? A theme of any immigrant to the United States. And why, after finding home and success here, does she question through her poetry some of the promise of this nation. Well, she joins me now. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Mother slash land, uh, otherwise pronounced motherland, but there's a slash here. And mother and land are on two different lines. What are you trying to convey here? Yeah, so I think, you know, the the immediate thing, which is certainly part of what I'm doing there, is both mother and land uh, and, and the whole word, right? So all, all the things that you associate with mother, with land, and with motherland. Um, and, and, you know, I could write it without the slash, and I think that would be there. But I think putting the slash kind of opens up for people to think about it and activate the two words that are already there, mother and land. And I think I think that kind of sets you up for what's happening in the book where, you know, the slash can be like a line break, <laughs> you know, where where the first line uh, activates one reading, the second line, another reading and them together, yet another reading. <laughs> If that makes sense. Yes, and and indeed, there's a lot of varied punctuation in the poetry, which we can get into. But this is a portrayal of of you as an immigrant, as you a foreigner living in your new adopted country, America. You're from Brazil originally, uh, and and indeed, there is there is quite a bit of Portuguese mixed mm-hmm. into the poems. Sometimes just in the title, sometimes also in the poetry itself. Why the mixing? And and what is a reader? Uh, in a practical sense, what is a reader who doesn't speak the language supposed to do? How should they be approaching the poetry that has words foreign to them that they may not be able to understand? I love that question, and I love that how you said in a practical sense, because I certainly am ta- thinking about that as I'm playing with that. Um, so there's a couple of things that go into that answer. One is like a more high-level conceptually like thinking of what I'm doing as a whole and the other one is sort of getting into the nitty-gritty on when I'm actually working in individual poems so overall there's a couple of things that I'm playing with um on one side is uh because I'm an immigrant right and I I I sort of immigrated as a young adult so I didn't grow up here um 
there's a lot of context that I'm always missing uh, in conversation or when I'm reading things and people say, oh, remember that Super Bowl ad or whatever? (laughs) And I'm like, I have no idea what people are talking about. That happens a lot. And I think that's not just true of immigrants, but anybody who kind of um, enters a, a, a context where their background doesn't match that context. So I, I guess if you're like a first-generation college student, um, you know, people will be talking and you'll be missing a lot of the things they're referring to as well. Um, so I wanted to have that experience that is so mine in there. Um, and there's a couple of reasons. One of them is one that I think a lot of people a lot of poets work with this, is um, to work on the assumption that things have to be fully understood by a a certain population, right? So, uh, which kind of makes sense. So books are usually written uh, for people who speak English, (laughs) that makes sense. And also, um, historically, you know, they ha- make catered for a certain background, like it could be a white person um, who is kind of whoever is considered mainstream. And I wanted to write a book that doesn't cater to that person. Um, and I think there's a there's a couple of things to that. One is that uh, I think it's 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 important for the person to even realize that the other books are catered to them, <laughs> you know, and I think when there's a gap there, when they don't understand, they're like, wait, this is different. I can understand all the other books. But do you think it's a definition of catering to simply have a book in the language of the population who might be buying it at a bookstore in the United States? No, is, is, I don't is think... That, is, that, is that catering or, or, or is that a, allowing the reader to enter the world of the writer in, in the best way possible? Yes, I don't think that's the definition of catering. I love that question. I don't think like books should be written in a language you don't understand. I don't think that's the definition of catering. I think as a poet or as as a poet, you find a way to poke at that that is kind of like pushing it. <laughs> you know, so I don't think books should all be bilingual, but I think to provoke that experience, um there's a way to provoke that experience in this one book. <laughs> you know what I mean? So things are catered in other ways. So um, let me think of how to explain that in uh, my experience. So, for example, if you go to a writing workshop, and I, I don't know if writers usually go to wor- writer workshops where people discuss their stories. <laughs> um, so people go, I don't understand this. Um, and for me, it's fascinating that you find that it is a problem in a story that you don't understand a part of it. Because for me, I'm not understanding all the time, <laughs> you know, and I either imagine or look it up. I don't think that books should be bilingual, but this was my way to poke at that idea, if that makes sense. Yes, indeed it does. I think it would be useful for the reader to have a translation uh, or a, a dictionary, <laughs> um, or, or the internet nearby. Um, right. You do certainly uh, put a big emphasis on language, uh, yeah. and uh, and there, there's a, there's a lot of interesting use of the English language, and then there is, as we said, Portuguese mixed in. Uh, how do you go about 
<laughs> you know, the mixing process. I, I, I understand yeah, that, yeah. that that you're, you're in, in a sense, challenging an English, an only English-speaking reader, challenging them to say, look, not everything for a foreigner is as, as easy and, mm. and, and accessible maybe as for a native English speaker. So you throw in these words or phrases here and there to say, look, there's other stuff out there. Yes, I love that, that question too, because, you know, like, you know, a dictionary or the internet. I love like, you know, uh, you mentioning those solutions. So, so I think I, I, I will get into how I go about it, but there's another side to like the high concept, which is not, it's actually kind of like the flip side of that, right? So when people talk about a lot of people that work on either bilingual work or, or things that challenge access, it's kind of like, well, I want you to see what it's like. It sounds kind of like, I don't know, didactic or punitive, <laughs> you know, but there's also a joy to it. I actually enjoy times when I encounter things that are not transparent to me because I love observing what I do with it. Either look it up, or imagine, you know, times when I don't look it up and I use what I know, I actually enjoy that experience. So I wanted to give that to the reader as well. Uh, so when I'm working on, on making the poems, um, I had a high level like project. So I had, a, I had this goal that is, I'm going to see different ways that I can do this and different things that I can give the reader. And so, um, so I'm not always approaching in the same way. Um, so sometimes it happens very naturally just because I'm bilingual. So both languages are in, in my brain, <laughs> you know, and, um, it happens very naturally. Um, and then when I go about editing and seeing what stays and what goes, um, I think, okay, this is a poem where what I'm giving the reader is sonic so i'm very much just working on the sounds which i love imagining that the speaker doesn't even know what it sounds like and they have to build that in their own brain you know um and and that is like with a poem like bedding bow in the end of the book it's it's a very sonic experience sometimes what i'm giving the reader is cognates so words that actually you know like uh look very similar to the English one. Um, and sometimes what I'm giving them um, is a form. So, you know, in, in poetry, there's these repeating forms, like, for example, a pantoon is a form that is known to poets, <laughs> right? And poets know, okay, this line is going to repeat in this position. And then if they know the form, they will know that that line in Portuguese actually is a kind of translation of a previous line. But to access that, you have to know the form, <laughs> right? Um, so I'm playing with how people of different backgrounds will be able to get partial information differently from the same poem. And that gives me a lot of joy, <laughs> you know? And, yeah, and yeah. I think, uh, yeah, and I think you know, for the reader who's like me, who enjoys this kind of shenanigans, <laughs> you know, it will give them joy too. Um, so, so yes, different poems. I went about making that specific poem in different ways, but I had this overarching thing that um, 
what am I giving this person if they don't look anything up, <laughs> you know? Um, I had that in the back of my mind for each of the poems. I'd like to know how you got started on writing poetry. A lot of people have things they want to say, and they express things in prose, they express them in poetry, they express them in music, they express them in paintings, they express them in private journalistic entries for themselves, or maybe something they would share with a friend or family member on a rare occasion. You are in poetry. What was it about poetry that drew you in as an early kid? You know, I write poetry and fiction and I take photos. So I'm so in, I love that question because I'm so interested on how it works for different people. And I think it's cool that you bring so many different people on this podcast too. So for me, I wrote poetry as a kid, but it was very much like, you know, kid poetry. Everything was rhyming and cute, you know, like pleasing the adults. Um, and I stopped. I never wrote poetry for a long time. Uh, I wrote like secretly. Um, and it was prose. It was mostly prose. And when I came out as a writer and I told people, hey, I'm writing, and I started sharing, it was fiction. Um, and what happened was, um, you know, I get lots of writing things when I'm walking or running. Uh, what happens is I started getting these lines. So I'll get like a, a, a phrase or a sentence or a line, and then I'll come back. And I'll try to write a story that had that line, um, which did not work out. It would be like a very crappy story. And I only like that line. So slowly as this started to happen, I realized, no, no, these are poems. The line doesn't want that story around it, you know. Um, so you have so, so you so you strip away the extraneous and keep what you think yes. makes the cut quality wise or expression wise. Exactly. And the funny thing is that the extraneous thing I was adding post back because I didn't know how to do what I was to do with those lines. And so I, I cut out the extraneous and, and it's it's the stuff that I was adding on top of what what that line wanted to be. So it's exactly that. But it happened very naturally. I wasn't seeking for poetry. But once I started writing poems, it did become my primary medium. So I still write fiction and I love doing it. But I know that my thing and my main thing is poetry. What was it as a child that, uh -huh. that introduced you to the written word to begin with? Were there books around? Were there uh, poetry anthologies? Were there, were there the great pieces of European or American literature? Was there an anthology of Charles Dickens in translation? I love that. Let me think about that. So, um, so I think my exposure, um, and, and thinking about it, I think um, I, can, I can see how my trajectory as a poet uh, came full circle. But I had a lot of music, and um, Brazilian music from, six, from the 60s and 70s. Um, there's a lot of very beautiful writing. Um, there's some writing that was designed to sort of um, get past um, censorship. So they did a lot of clever tricks, <laughs> you know, uh, poet stuff, <laughs> you know, the hiding the meaning with double meanings. So there was some of that. And, and there was school, of course, and, and I went to school uh, just after, I mean, just after the dictatorship. There was a dictatorship we were coming out of. So there was kind of like 
this interest in those lyrics. So not only did I hear it at home, but at school, they're like, hey, look at this. They are doing this here. Uh, to, to f There was an interest in, in those tricks that musicians had played the decades before to get past censorship. And I was exposed to that at school. So, for example, a very common example that they taught us at school, there's a song where uh, the 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 singer singing about uh chalice chalice there you go right. and yeah. and and that and that is the same word for shut up <laughs> if you look at it but it's written different you know so so they were saying how they use the, this to to say to talk about censorship but talking about this this wine they were drinking at the same time. So that was something I was exposed to at school and at home li listening to the lyrics. Um, and um, and my, my mom and dad, they only got, I mean, they, they read, they read, but uh, they only got like a college education after I was almost out of home. So they, they don't come from a big literary family or anything. So my aunt, uh, from the, she moved to the U.S. and she left a lot of belongings there in our house. Um, and one of the things she left was this gigantic book collection, um, you know, like with the matching leather-bound books. They looked very fancy, uh, but lots of books. And, and it had a bunch of classics, and it had also Brazilian titles. It had a lot of stuff. And I would uh, constantly read through them. Sometimes I'll read whole books. Sometimes i just pick uh, and read passages. But that was around. Those were more sort of like literary things going on, but also, you know, just storytelling in general. Um, I have a big family. Um, my mom had uh, nine surviving siblings that were adults, <laughs> and they all had kids. So I was always listening to them talk to each other. And I think to connect with this thing where I enjoy filling in gaps that I don't have access to. My mom and her sisters and one brother, they had so many private jokes from living together over the years and, and stories that they like to tell where I would get the gist of it and most of it, but there were things they were joking about that I had no idea what they were talking about because there was their own thing. I was exposed to that a lot as a child, uh, but it was kind of a joyful experience, curiosity and, and, and wanting to know what they were talking about and imagining. So I think I uh, that just listening to people's stories and my family's stories also uh, influenced what I came out, ended up doing later, <laughs> you know. But I didn't know anything like that at the time or when I'm doing my work. It's This kind of stuff comes after you've done it and you try to sort of figure out why you did things the way you did, you know. A lot of what you write about has to do, as we said before, with, uh, with the idea of, of, of mothering. Indeed, one of the early poems in the book, In-Flight Entertainment, While the Doomsday Seed Bank is Breached. What, what is this poem about? You're talking about the face of your son as you watch him uh, watching a, a movie on an airplane. Well, why did you want to write this poem? Tell us what this is all about. It's a rather a, a violent uh, poem, in a sense. Right. right. So, um, 
so yes, that poem, um, yes, yeah, so that poem, um, it, it's funny how poems come to you. So that poem came when I wanted to write about something that I still haven't written about, uh, which is the fact that we have, um, uh, you know, human eyes look forward, right? Like they're not like cow eyes, which are in the side of your head. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to sound very strange. So this is how I started that poem. See how weird it is. So it's and 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 then and then I I'm I read somewhere uh that you know if you have front facing eyes it's a predator predator eyes, right? And then if you have side facing eyes it's non-predator eyes because you're sort of scanning for mm. predator. You want to see everything. But when you have front-facing eyes, you sort of focus on the thing you're going to, you know, attack, <laughs> you know. And um, so little things like that stay for months with me. I'm like, I have to write with this because that's so weird and, and uncomfortable, you know. But what were you thinking about while you looked at your son on the airplane? Right. So I, I, I in the plane. So this stays with this. This fact stays with you. Right. And, and then the other thing is like human sapiens, like uh, being the only humans. And how did that come about? So these things are in my head for months. And then I watch him watch this movie, uh, Ice Age, which is a very, I don't know, funny cartoon for kids. I, have you maybe watched that no, one? No, I haven't. I, I'll put it yeah. on the list of cartoons to watch. <laughs> I'm not recommending it. So it's just in case you want to see what it is. But <laughs> I wouldn't have watched it either if I didn't have a kid, you know. Uh, but it's it's a cartoon, and um, it just freaks me out a lot, that cartoon. <laughs> uh, first of all, it's like, you know, Ice Age, like this extinct animals. I, I don't, I don't watch, I haven't watched the whole thing. I just saw him watching on the airplane. And what freaked me out is both the idea of the cartoon, because it's these animals that are going to go extinct, but also the violence, right? So um, it's it's less of a, a violence like, oh, they are fighting this group that they hate. It's not that kind of violence. It's more like slapstick uh, violence. Like, you know, there's this, this little recurring animal that goes after this nut. He's, he's like a... There's a there's a nut that he wants to eat and it rolls around and he's sort of always try to get it. But he always gets like smashed and banged and falls into holes. But I was just watching that and sort of like uh, I was tensed because because so many these animals just being punched, you know, left, right and center. And that's supposed to be funny. So that was freaking me out a lot. <laughs> you know, I can't even watch this thing. I'm like closing my eyes. But it's supposed to be funny for a little kid. So watching that, I started writing that poem with that image. And and um, and the other thing that was freaking me out at the at at the time uh, was this global seed vault place that holds all the world's seeds that that people know about. Um, and there was a breach because of melting ice. They have since fixed it <laughs> for now. But that was freaking me out at the time. So I love this question because it's a very typical uh, situation where a poem comes about. You have all these facts that are sort of, uh, I don't know, bothering you or interesting you. And you're thinking about them for months. And then 
suddenly they all come together into this one object. And I don't plan how they're going to come together, but I'm thinking about them separately. And then this this thing happens, which is my son watching this cartoon, which he's watching because it's on the plane, because I wouldn't like rent it for him. Um, but, you know, we're trapped there, so he's going to watch all this stuff. <laughs> and um, and that brought about all these things that were bothering me that I didn't know how to write about um, in that moment. So that happens a lot. I have these things. And then suddenly, oh, this image that I would never imagine that this would be the thing helped me write about it. The other thing that I like about that poem is that it kind of looks like icebergs on the side <laughs> that goes with ice, <laughs> you know. So all these things come together, which is why one of one of the many reasons why I love working with poetry is that um, if I let myself just go with it, things that come together that would be very difficult for me to put together if I were doing prose and explaining the connections. I think it wouldn't work. It would be too crazy, you know. But in poetry, there's more flexibility to see how those things come all together into one poem. And that's why it's so freaky, <laughs> you know. A lot, of, a lot of this is about your experience in America. Are you... Are you happy in America? What is your day-to-day -day experience? You, you, you've gotten a lot out of this country, to be sure, publications and, and uh, illustrious degrees, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But you certainly don't view this as a perfect society. Well, what's your relationship to America and, and, your, and your foreign relationship to your home country, Brazil? Yes. I love that question. Um, because... I'm very uncomfortable in America and haven't always been that uncomfortable with America. But, you know, I have this thought lately that maybe uh, America, even though I have very specific gripes that make me uncomfortable here, uh, and those are very true for me. But I also think, well, maybe America for me is a metaphor for the whole thing, the whole world, uh, you know, because there are so many problems everywhere because I'm like, where could I go? But it's it's very hard. But yes, I, I have found a lot of joy here and I've had a very good life here. Um, but also um, all those things that I wrote are also true, <laughs> you know, mm. um, and I think I think it's it's um it's a reflection of how present those problems are in my mind, even though I'm having a great life and, and having a good time, you know, um, I'm always concerned about those things, both because even because I'm having a good life. So there's that poem when they come for us on the seventh train at the end. And it's a little bit about, you know, like the, the last presidency was very scary for me because there was this constant, like not knowing where things are going to go and, and pressure. But I'm also in a very uh, lucky position, right? I'm a citizen. I have my papers. I have people who would look for me if anything happened. So I'm in a very different situation from somebody who's, I don't know, undocumented and try to get like work in this job that is very visible, you know. So I'm in a different position, even though 
I'm an immigrant and there was a generic, there's a generic anti-immigrant sentiment. So even as I'm having my good life, I'm like, wow, uh, I kind of feel guilty about having my good life. And I also feel worried about the future. Um, you know, if we go back to that discussion of that poem with the Ice Age and the humans and their front-facing view and uh, the fact that there's only humans, there's only sapiens and there's no other humans that freak me out. These things freak me out because I'm, because, you know, throughout history, there are so many times when things turned ugly, right? So I feel safe. And it's hard to imagine not being safe. And I think I will continue being safe, relatively speaking. But it's also weird to think of all the times when history turned very ugly in populations that were being targeted. I wonder if those, how those people, if they imagined that they would come when they would be rounded up and, I don't know, killed, etc. You know, so it's hard for me to to be relaxed with my happy life, knowing history. <laughs> Does that make sense? And knowing that there's other people also who are suffering now. So it's a constant balance. And the thing is, it's it's not just America, but a lot of it is going on in America. So there's a lot. <laughs> yeah. But a lot of what you're talking about, many people would say would never happen here, could never happen here, which, which is what yeah. sets America apart. I I love I love that you brought that up because I don't know I don't I don't agree with that view but I don't think it will happen necessarily you know <laughs> I I think well yes maybe it's gonna be okay but I I don't the 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 view that America is special in that way is mixed with a lot of messages that I think sometimes are true sometimes are not so I'm always like well. Why wouldn't it happen here? Didn't people think it wouldn't happen where it happened? <laughs> you know what I mean? And things have happened here, right? Like uh, lots, a lot of things have happened here. So, so I have a very conflicted not knowing, but also not convinced that I can relax <laughs> uh, position, you know? And I love that you brought that up because that's such an American thing to bring up. Right. To think that America is special and America is special in a way that I don't know. Everywhere is special. <laughs> um, so I don't know that I can trust that feeling. Well, you came here out of all the countries in the world. There must have been a reason right. that you came to America and not Germany and right. not England and not India or China. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. And, and for me that. Yes. And I, I came here. Yes. And again, uh, Going along with my, uh, I don't know, happy life. I came here because I liked the linguistics department at UCLA. <laughs> you know, so I didn't come here thinking, I'm going to go to America. I was actually in Australia. <laughs> I lived in Australia. Um, so, so there's a lot that I love here, but there's a lot that I don't love. When you say America is special in the way that other countries are also special, don't you think that... Yeah diminishes the reason why so many people flee to America, why so many people flee persecution to come to America over the past century, why so many people feel like they can only be at home artistically and personally uh, in America, where your family history, where the uh, societal, financial 
a sociological position of your family doesn't dictate where you're going to go, where first-generation people can accomplish incredible things in America that wouldn't be possible in most of Europe. I think that's probably true for different people, depending on what they are looking for. Um, but even that, I think, you know, I think that that is the story and it's true in many cases, but also social mobility, right? In the, this generation is, is, is much lower than it used to be, right? Like, so, so I think that is true-ish. I don't think necessarily it's true. I don't know. I think, for example, if somebody wanted I mean, it's, it is the, the center, right? Like, uh, artistically speaking, a lot is going on here, depending on what you do, right? So there is that. But I think, like, oh, you come with nothing and become something. I think that has been true for some people. And, uh, but I don't know. I think if you, depending on who you are, if you go to Canada, where they'll have healthcare and, uh, <laughs> and something else, that may be just as, good or better choice for you. I think it really depends on what your situation is. America is special in its special American way, <laughs> but I think there are different things going on in different countries too. Um, but, you know, that that is something you can talk about, but that is not the same as saying, oh, genocide wouldn't happen in America. You know what I mean? This is kind of different questions. Is, is America a place where I feel like, for example, writing and publishing, I feel like there's so much activity and so much going on? Yes. Does that type of specialness, <laughs> and I don't even know about that type of specialness. It's hard for me to think about. Does that translate into this place not, and, and genocide not happening here? I don't think these are the same things and I don't think they translate. And of course, genocide has happened here, right? <laughs> so, um, well, gen genocide, genocide has, has, uh, uh happened, uh, in every corner exactly. of the world and it was happening exactly. in Uni and it was, it was happening here before any European exactly. settler appeared here as well. Yes. What I'm saying, but that's the question, right? Is, is, is America, I'm not saying that it doesn't happen in the rest of the world, but the question was is if America is special in that it won't happen here. You see, you see what I mean? I'm not saying, oh, it won't happen elsewhere or it doesn't happen elsewhere. I'm saying I don't feel like I can count on it not happening here. I'm not saying it's going to happen here in the current wave, you know what I mean? But I'm saying I wouldn't rule it out based on America being special. Uh, well, uh, I, I would rule it out based on the fact that uh, 330 million people in America and uh, the great majority of Americans uh, work each year, each day to, to make this country a better place for their kids. And, uh, and that, I believe, is the real tale of America that perhaps isn't on social media very much, perhaps not in the mainstream media very much, that the great majority of Americans uh, simply want to have their kids have a, a better life than they did. And in fact, uh, to, going along with what you mentioned, you said, well, social mobility is possible for some people and not others. In, in 2015, uh, for example, just a few years back, 56% of all undergraduates were first-generation college students. Um, and, uh, and that's a, an incredible uh, number. 56% of all undergraduates were first-generation college students. I, I, I would be uh, shocked if it approached that number in any other uh, Western country, not to mention 
uh, non-Western country, and uh, and as someone who's who's been privileged to perform concerts all over the world in every corner from Middle East through Asia and everywhere else, uh, I, I I do uh, I do see a, a freedom of expression here, and I see a freedom of mobility that uh, that I I believe you respectfully are are diminishing. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot of things mixed in. I love that statistics. I don't love student debt and how hard it is to escape. But I love that. Um, I think there's a lot of things mixing here, right? So I wasn't talking about this. There's not awesome things happening here, right? The, I was answering the question, if I think that America is special in a way that genocide would not happen here. I'm not saying it's going to happen, right? I'm just saying... Or, or if not, you know, things that I worry about, violence that targeted violence, targeting a group of people, right? Uh, but also genocide would not happen here because America is special. But speaking about targeting violence, the rise in anti-Semitic attacks over the past year is incredible uh, statistic. Uh, right. Hate crimes uh, against Jews all over the country, from uh, New York to Los Angeles and everywhere in between, have been uh, skyrocketing to name one group of people uh, who is o- often not covered by social media or media. Right. And also, yes. And then, and then you know, yes. Per- yep. Very concerning. Um, you know, uh, things that are covered, you know, African-American uh, and brown people, police violence, all this stuff. But I'm not, you know, these are all related questions, but they're not the same question, right? Like, are there awesome, energizing, lovely things happening in America? Yes. That is not the same question of, should I never worry about the current um climate turning into something uglier those are different questions and and you you express that you think things wouldn't happen here because people are more concerned are concerned about living a good life and giving a good life to their children and i think that's that's lovely and that might be true um i don't feel like i can rule out and i feel like i can just relax here uh based on that you know, I think there are wonderful people. I I know a lot of people here that I love and uh, from all sorts of populations and all sorts of places. I think there's wonderful things happening here. Um, but that's a different question from do I think things could turn ugly uh, in the current climate? You know what I mean? Um, both things can be true. There's a lot of things happening <laughs> right um so i can be worried about the climate and who will and does suffer from violence that is targeted at groups of people like the example you mentioned while still thinking well there's wonderful things going on here they're just different questions talking about wonderful things as you know uh, nanda lima um, everybody speaks about music on this program uh, what does music <laughs> do for you music is is uh, the great unifier and and there's there's no more uh, diverse place uh, to hear music than on the american concert stage what's music for you yeah so um music for me i i love that just thinking of coming here i i started thinking about it so um i i think music was very 
important in my, as I mentioned before, in my becoming the person who I am. Um, and, and, uh, you know, I, I was, there's a, there's a singer that I, I write about a lot. I refer to a lot in the book, which is uh, Caetano Veloso. And, um, he has this record, uh, called Transa, uh, from 1978 or 79. And I feel like, Part of knowing me is knowing that record because I just love it so much, <laughs> you know, and it, it's just such a continue. Like I, I've always listened to it, so I think I think it's a um, a very important part of my life and my experience and who I am. Um, I find it very strange that recently I haven't been listening to a lot of new things. And I wonder if that's kind of a comfort thing or what it is. Um, but I'm interested in that question, and I may write about that question. So I have to figure it out. But music is very important. Well, new things can both comfort us and challenge us, and, and the same things exactly. with, 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 old, uh, with old, because great music can evolve with you, should evolve with you, and you can hear it differently today than you did five years ago. At the same time, discovering new repertoire uh, is a wonderful way to expand one's worldview and expand one's emotional and sonic uh, possibilities uh, because you can hear a sound or a, an instrumental or a vocal combination you never heard before. It can move you mm -hmm. in a new way. That's totally true. I'm I just, just sharing uh, something for this year because this year has been different and sometimes this past year and a half, a couple of years. Um, I remember, like, the first public thing that I went to was uh, this July. I went to, like, a poetry reading, as I love going to, and it was very weird and magical and wonderful. Um, it was at a bar here in Chicago. And then after the poetry reading, I didn't even know this, but they had this musician come, and his name was uh, Daniel Levin. Levin, Levin, <laughs> one of those. Hmm. Um, and I was floored. I, I was just so, it was just so, um, I, I was just so open and um, moved in a way that I had not like felt in a long, long time. And it's, it's because I hadn't been to a live music thing. And it was just so disarming and so overwhelming, you know, and it wasn't, it was, experimental and instrumental you know so it wasn't like I was um thinking of particular themes or uh, you know a particular thing but it was just this pure feeling without attaching to to words or pictures and and it's just so restorative so I'm very interested in this non-verbal non-image thing with music it's, it's really magical for me as a person who works with words and pictures, <laughs> you know, to, to be able to have this experience that I can't describe and I can't paraphrase in these other mediums. It's very magical. So I'm very grateful to musicians. <laughs> well, it, it is uh, attributed to many people, but in, indeed, uh, I think the most often attribution to uh, this quote is Hans Christian Andersen, where words fail, music speaks. And uh, and this, this you know, there's there, there's there is this idea that 
that music expresses everything that you can't write in words, but at the same time, it's so brutally specific that it conjures up yes. the most specific things, but they can't be written down, and those two can coexist. I love that. Yeah, that's that's very cool. I love that. And um, as somebody who cannot, like I have no musical ability, so I just enjoy it, um, I'm just fascinated by that because – because you know, photographs and 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 um, visual arts has a nonverbal. But I love you know going along with the quote that you read. It's not only the nonverbal, but it's also not necessarily visual. Of course, there's there can be visual things happening inside you, but it doesn't depend on that. So I I just love experiencing that and and let it, and, and knowing that it exists. <laughs> To me, music is the most democratic of, of any fine art. It, yes. it, it doesn't require uh, anything yes. at all. And, and these days, with the preponderance of uh, the Internet and how easy it is to access music, it doesn't even require you have uh, transportation to a museum. It doesn't require you can, yes. you can pay an entry fare to a concert or need to find a way to get your hands on a great piece of literature or a book of poetry. Uh, anybody with the, uh, the power of the cell phone now, and I, I think it's fair to say across all uh, economic classes, cell phones are, are pretty widespread. You can access uh, millions of hours of wonderful music, and for that, we can all be grateful. I love that, and I so agree. And, you know, I think that is so true the way you described with with today, with access to your phone, etc. But also, you know, when I was growing up, um, there was, you know, before my big collection of books, my aunt's big collection of books, or people with less education and, and um, people who didn't even know how to write or read. Uh, music in Brazil was so alive and it was so important and there was so much beauty and richness that was accessible to everybody in the radio, you know? So I, I really feel that I've seen that, that democratic nature so much. Uh, in my life. Mm -hmm. Jobim, Antonio Carlos Jobim and the duets with Elise Regina. How do you pronounce this? Elise, that sounds great. Elise Regina. Aguas de Marco. How do you say that? Yeah. Aguas de Marco. Marco. Yeah, that's right. And this this is, is one, this was an introduction to me uh, when I went to a friend's house and they were playing this spectacular duet. And uh, now I put this music on all the time and it's quite extraordinary indeed. Uh, Ananda Lima, what, what comes next for you? This, this uh, poetry compilation is out this fall. Uh, what are you working on now? Uh, in the cold months, are you sitting by a fire with a, a pad and a <laughs> pen and paper? I love that. I, I do feel very cozy writing this season. So I'm, um, I'm working on two things. One is my next poetry collection, which is going to take a long time because it's still a baby, but it's, it's very much on vision and uh, visual perception, parallax effect and binocular vision. So it's kind of different, you know, like there, there is some of the motherhood stuff, but it's, it's very much based on perception and vision, which is why I'm, I'm so interested now in things that lack that, like music. So that's one, the visual poetry collection. And the other one is a short story collection that I've been writing for a long time that I'm sort of wrapping up this year. We'll look forward to it all with, with some provoking statements indeed and, uh, and some candid views of the written word and your adopted home country, Ananda Lima. Indeed, I thank you. Thank you so much. 
You've been listening to Talking Beats with Daniel Elchuk. The original theme music is by Ronald Barkham. The content coordinator is Nathaniel Mose, and Doug Christian is executive producer. We invite you to subscribe and leave a five-star review on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. You can support us at patreon.com slash talkingbeats. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash talkingbeats. And be sure to check us out on social media. We'll see you next time on Talking Beats with Daniel Elchuk.